our series called Under Construction that we started at the beginning of this month, and uh, we've been talking about the building blocks of faith, and how many of you know that uh, no matter where you are on your journey of faith, you're always building your faith, or you're, we're designed to be building. It's God's will for us that we would always be building our faith, and uh, we're going we're gonna to continue in that the rest of this month, and then next month we're actually going to be talking about how it uh, works out in our life. The, uh, the, the gospel and the, the building blocks of faith in our own life. So uh, I'm gonna read out of my text first this morning. We're gonna start with that out of 2 Timothy. I'm gonna ask you to stand with me, if you would, please, as we honor God's word together. Uh, if you do not have your Bible with you, you can look on the big screen behind me. We'll have it up there as well. Uh, this is the Apostle Paul's second letter to his protege, Timothy. In chapter three, verse 14, it starts. It says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it and now and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Praise God for that. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Can somebody say amen? Amen. That's a good word. Uh, so we've been talking about the building blocks of faith. We started with the foundation of the gospel and the importance of that and how we build on the gospel in our life. Last week, we talked about the Holy Spirit's role in our life. Today, we're going to talk about the Word of God. We're going to talk about the Bible today. And the title of my message today is Fact or Fable. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we love you today. God, we are so blessed to come into this place this morning. We pray that you would uh, glorify your name today, Lord Jesus. We are here for you. And we pray that your name would be the only name being mentioned this afternoon when we're talking about the goodness of God and the, the blessings in our life, Father. I pray that you would open our hearts, Lord. Help us to receive this word today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the Bible because we know it is the inspired word of God for each and every one of us. And we pray that you would bless the rest of this time that we have together today. And it's in Jesus' mighty and precious name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. Praise God. You can be seated. I told the staff this morning that we're going to be preaching on the Bible today, and they said, it's about time. <laughs> we're finally preaching the word. No, it was a joke, but um, we are going to be talking about the Bible today. You know, and in fact, as I was preparing this this week, um, I was reminded of a story of my own back from, I believe it was first grade, maybe second grade. It was a long time ago. I was at a little Christian school up in Northeast Ohio, and uh, we, uh, our desks were those ones that were open in the front. You could put all your school supplies in the desk. And I remember having this block eraser, pencil eraser, that was one of those blocks that came in a package, a prepackage, and it was in my desk and it was unopened and it was my favorite thing that I had in my desk. And uh, it's funny, the things we remember, right? I mean, it's so silly. Of all the things in life to remember, I remember an eraser. But uh, I remember it because I remember specifically knowing that, you know, when you're in first grade, you're still learning how to write, you make a lot of mistakes, so you erase a lot. And oftentimes those erasers on the end of the pencil don't survive the life of the pencil because you have to do so much erasing. And so having that backup was wonderful and it gave me a little security blanket and I loved having it. My goal was to not have to open it all year, which you know I didn't set my goals very high when I was six years old. But I remember vaguely that there was another boy in the class that didn't take care of the eraser on the end of his pencil as well and he needed one badly one day. And in an incredible act of self-sacrifice and humility, I opened my 25 cent eraser and gave it to him. Um, I'm sure the Lord was very pleased and uh, has, has uh, blessed me because of it. <laughs> um, it felt like a sacrifice then, but it probably wasn't much of one. But it's a ridiculous story until uh, you think of it in the, in the light of, I feel like that's how we look at the word of God oftentimes in our life. That we, we love having one. In fact, I bet probably everyone in this room has a Bible in their house. Does anyone in here have more than two Bibles in their home? More than five, 10. Okay, guys, there's still hands up, but 10 Bibles, okay? I, I think we have at least that many, right? I mean, you get the little ones, then you get the big ones, you got the one on your phone. Everybody has tons of Bibles, right? And we love having them, but I feel like sometimes it's something that be can become memorialized in our life, kind of like that eraser was that I wanted to keep it in that pretty packaging you know, we love our Bible. We love that it's, you know, you get a nice leather one. It's got the real thin pages that feel good on your fingers and has the little tassel that comes in some of them and all those things. And we love having it, but too oftentimes it's something that we only want to use it on a rainy day instead of making it part of our everyday life. 
like that, that infamous eraser that was in my desk so many years ago. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I hope to broach some of those things today and maybe even stir you up today to invigorate you when it comes to the Word of God. I think all of us know how to answer the question, is the Word of God valuable? Is it God's Word? Is it important? Do we need to consume it in our life? We'd all say yes to all those things, but the reality is Bible engagement in our culture is uh, the lowest it's been uh, in a very, very, very long time. And so I know that it's uh, something that's a challenge for many of us, but I hope to stir you up today to encourage you in the Word of God. Um, I, I know it's the most read book in the history of the world. Uh, it's sold the most copies by far of any book ever produced in the world. The second place book is many times lower than what the Bible has been produced and sold. I think it, the last count, it was over five billion Bibles have been produced and sold around the world. It's definitely made a name for itself. But how do we know that it's the Word of God? How do we know? I mean, that's a legitimate question. That's actually a very valid question, and it's a question we should all be asking. We should all know why we believe what we believe. You know, if somebody came to you and said, you know, a pastor or a teacher or somebody you respected said, you know what, you don't need to worry about trying to figure out whether or not the Bible's true. You just need to believe it and trust me and just, just have blind faith. There's people that have studied it and know that it's true, and that should be good enough for you. Can I tell you today, that is not a reason to believe the Bible. Okay, our faith is not a blind faith, it's actually an intelligent faith. Our mind and our heart are meant to work together and we need to know why we believe what we believe. So we should be asking ourselves, is the Bible really God's word? And we should explore that in our life. And I'm gonna give you a lot of stuff today, I'm gonna give you some solid evidence, but I would encourage you, man, we have so much at the end of our fingertips right now to be able to do our own research too. I would encourage you to look for yourself too. Because the reality is, if, if you don't want to believe everything I say today, you'll be able to poke holes in it and, and say a thousand reasons why that's probably not the actual, actual truth. You have to want to believe it. Because no matter what, the Word of God, it takes a measure of faith to believe it. It takes a measure of faith to believe anything in life. But it, and it's no different for the Word of God. In fact, 2 Corinthians 5, 7 tells us very clearly, we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not just by sight is, is what that should say. Well, there's sight to it too, but there's an aspect of faith that we have to have to really believe and, and live with and for the Bible. Now, I believe the validity of the Bible wholeheartedly in my life, and some of that is based on facts and data, but more of it in my life is based on the fact that I know what it's done in my life, that I've, my life has proven the Bible to be true. And that's way better to stand on than anything else that you'll ever be able to stand on because just getting head knowledge is not gonna help you. It's got to be something that's lived out in your life. But I've experienced it in my life. I've experienced how when it says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you, I've experienced that in my life. Where he says, my strength is made perfect in your weakness, I've experienced that in my life. I've experienced the path of salvation in my life through this and I've seen the difference in my life based on the word of God. I've experienced Present your request to God with thanksgiving and the peace of God will guard your heart. I've experienced that. It's not just words on a page to me. We have to be able to live it out and, and let it be exemplified in our life. The reality is I can give you dozens and dozens and dozens of principles in the word and how it's affected my life. But the reality is at the end of the day, the bottom line is you're going to have to experience it for yourself too, to have any sustainability in your life. I had the incredible privilege of going to the top of the Eiffel Tower one time and I was up there at night and it was incredibly beautiful, and it was exhilarating, and one of the most amazing sights I've ever seen in my life. And I could tell you about it all day, and you could say, oh, that's neat, but it's totally different if you've actually been there. I can only take you so far on that journey of seeing the top of the Eiffel Tower unless you've actually been there and experienced it yourself. It's the same thing with the Word of God. I can teach it to you, I can tell you all about it, I can tell you what it's done in my life, but at the end of the day, it's gotta start doing stuff in your life too for it to really be sustained in your life. That's God's plan for us, for each and every one of us. And the Bible is true. I believe it wholeheartedly. And if you don't believe that it's true, it doesn't change the fact that it is true. Right? We have to understand that and remember that. If, if I, I can say I don't believe that gravity is true, I'm not going to adhere to the law of gravity. And I can say I can go to the top of the Empire State Building and I can jump off. And for a while, everything's going to be fine. I'm going to get a nice breeze running through my hair. Right? 
That's gravity thing is no big deal. I see somebody about halfway down. They say, how it's going? I'm like, good so far, right? But the moment is going to come where I am going to experience the effects of not believing the truth about gravity. And if you don't believe the Bible, the moment is going to come in your life where you're going to experience the effects of not believing the truth of the Word of God. You know, God doesn't force anything on us. You can choose to not live your life according to it, and you can actually get by okay in life for a while. In fact, the, the, the writer, the psalmist wrote about it, the Proverbs writes about it, I think it's in Ecclesiastes too, where, where the writers are complaining that the people that don't even love God are doing fine in life. And you can do fine for a while. But that's not, life is not just about this life, it's about so much more than this life. But not only that, the Bible will also help you in this life as well. And I'm gonna hopefully prove that to you today in many ways. So I wanna take a few minutes to kind of geek out on some of the information about the Bible, some of the logistics, okay? I won't take too long on this, um, but I wanted to share some of this too because I think a lot of us are, are wired in such a way it's really cool to hear some cool facts about the Bible. Um, so I wanna talk about some of the accuracies that they've noted in the Bible. First is the historical accuracy. Um, it, was, it was written by 40 different authors, at least 40 different ones, over a span of 1,500 to 1,600 years with no contradictions. Now that alone is an absolute miracle. 1,500 years span, no contradictions in it, and it flows perfectly from Genesis all the way to Revelation. There's no way that all those authors could have colluded together to say, hey, let's dupe the world and put this book together and make everybody believe it when it was done over 1,500 years. Most of the authors didn't even know each other, weren't even on the earth in the same century as other authors were, so there's no way they could have even colluded together to do that. And if you really want to make sure something doesn't have any contradictions or that it flows, the, the best way to do it is to have one author, right? Uh, the Quran has one author, Muhammad. The writings of Buddhism have one author, Buddha. And, and, and that was the way they ensured that it would be consistent, right? The Bible has 40 authors, authors over 1,500 years. An incredible feat for the Word of God. And it was written by different types of people. Some of them are kings, poets, prophets, sailors, soldiers, prisoners, common folk, fishermen, etc., etc., written in different places, in palaces, in homes, in ships, in caves, in prisons, written all over the place, like nothing consistent about the, the type of people or where it was written, yet the theme is consistent all the way through. And when you look at the Old Testament specifically, it was written over about a thousand year period, a thousand years from Genesis to Malachi. And it was completed around 500 BC was when, when the, the Old Testament was actually finished. And we have 44,000 manuscripts of the Old Testament, 44,000. That's incredible considering there was no copiers, typewriters, printing, printers, nothing. Everything was handwritten and there's 44,000 of them. No other literary work in the history of the world has anything close to that many manuscripts of it. And not only that, it was by far, had, had by far the strictest guidelines to copying it. Because everything had to be copied by hand, right? And, and they had all kinds of safeguards to make sure that it was copied accurately. I'll give you an example. The Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, it's the books of Moses that he wrote. When that was copied, they had a specific way they had to copy it to make sure that it was accurate. They knew that it had exactly 304,805 letters in the first five books of the Bible, okay? I know we're getting really deep in the weeds here, but this is really cool. They knew exactly how many letters it had, and when they were done writing it, copying it, they had to, one person had to count all the letters to make sure it added up to that exact number. If it was one number off, they had to go back and find the letter that was off, and if they couldn't find it, they scrapped it and started over. That's how intense it was. And not only that, they knew exactly that the middle of the Torah, the middle letter was in Leviticus 11.42, and it was after, it was after letter 152,402. So if that middle letter wasn't 152,403, if it wasn't the letter they knew it was supposed to be, they checked the first half, and if they couldn't find it, they scrapped it and started over. Unbelievable adherence and strict policy in copying it to make sure that the t original text was genuine and was passed through. And then the oldest copy of the Old Testament that we had up until recently was from about 900 AD, 900 to 1000 AD, somewhere in there. Everything written before that one, copied before that one, had been destroyed or lost or we, they didn't have any access to it. The oldest one we had was just from 1000 AD. And, and that wasn't until about 1947, I think it was, 
uh, where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Many of you probably have looked into that or studied that or at least know a little bit about it. Two Arab young men were in a cave just hanging out and they happened to find all these scrolls and didn't realize what they'd even found at the time. And uh, there was 1,050 scrolls that they found and 300 of them were biblical. And in those scrolls, there was a, at least a portion of every book in the Old Testament was in those scrolls except for Esther. Okay, so some of every book of the Old Testament, the only book of the Old Testament that they had the entire book in those scrolls was Isaiah. They had the whole book of Isaiah that they found in those scrolls. And when they looked at it and compared it to the one from 900 AD, which by the way, the one that they found was actually written in 125 to 150 BC. So there's a thousand year gap between the one they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and the most, the oldest one that we had up until that point, a thousand years. That's a long time, right? A thousand years. And it was, they determined that it was accurate to 95% of the older one. Now, I know you're thinking exactly what I thought. What about the other 5%, right? Well, 4% of that 5% was just spelling variations because as culture has evolved and changed over time, they changed how they spelled some things. Like for us, you know, American words, the word theater ends in E-R, the British version of theater ends in R-E. And we all know they're wrong, but they still do it. <laughs> just kidding, all, you, all my British friends. Um, and so you have spelling variations of words. You know, there's words where we spell O-R and they spell O-U-R at the end, things like that. 4% of that 5% was just spelling variations. It didn't illegitimize the text or anything like that. So 99% of what they found a thousand years earlier was completely identical to what we had from 900 AD. Only 1% of it was actually in question. That's an incredible miracle when it comes to literary work. I don't know much about literary work, but I've studied enough to know that for that to be is absolutely unheard of in any other book in history by far. It's really cool. So we know that at times historians have argued against the Bible and saying that it was wrong because of supposed inaccuracies, but it's been proven right over and over and over again. I'll just give you a few quick ones. The Hittites, the only place the Hittites were ever mentioned in, the, in, in history was in the Bible. And so people just, historians assume that Hittites weren't even a real people group. It was something made up in the Bible, right? Until the early 1900s, this is only about 100 years ago, that a, a professor named uh, Hugo Winkler discovered 10,000 clay tablets confirming that the Hittite people were actually a real people group. And you can Google it today that, and see that the Hittites are considered an actual group of people that were, they're extinct because they were wiped out, but they were actually a real group and the Bible has been proven to be true in that. Um, there were a lot of other things that were considered to be false or fables out of the Bible because they hadn't found them, but then later down they found these things. One of them was Herod's temple, was assumed to be non-existent. They found parts, remnants of it. Uh, Hezekiah's tunnel that he had dug when they were under siege by Assyria has been found. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, remnants of Sodom and Gomorrah were both found. Uh, the pool of Sil Siloam, was found and on and on and on and on. All these things that were at one time said, no, that doesn't exist, the Bible's a, it's fake, it's fiction. And they found these things that have confirmed that the Bible is actually true. And the beauty of it is, is that history has never ever found one thing to disprove anything in the Bible, ever. And let me tell you, there have been many, many attempts to find something that would make them be able to say, ah, oh, Bible's not true, there it is, we found it. The Dead Sea Scrolls, when they first found them, they thought, oh, here we go, this is gonna prove it, it's not true, and it all lines up with the Bible we have today. It's been proven over and over again historically. Scientifically, it's also accurate. You know, it's common in culture today to say you have to choose either God or science, right? I believe in science or I believe in God, which is ludicrous because science is proven by the Bible. The Bible always, never, ever has gone against real science. There have been times they thought there was things about science that weren't right, that, that, that disproved the Bible, but it's always been proven to be in error. Um, in fact, it's funny because a couple weeks ago, there was a couple sisters that came to youth group for the first time ever, and they hadn't been in church, I don't think, their whole life. And uh, the one girl, the first night they came, she gave her heart and her life to Jesus. They were able to pray with her and lead her to the Lord. She, she gave her life, asked forgiveness of her sins, and gave her heart to Jesus. And and, uh, but she said, my sister's not going to because my sister doesn't believe in God, she believes in science. And they told this to Jessica, and Jessica looked at her and said, well, that's great, we believe in science too. <laughs> it's not either or, 
It's both and, right? We can believe in science and in the Bible. In fact, in 1861, there was a famous book. It was called 51 Incontrovertible Proofs. Ooh, that's a tough word. That the Bible is scientifically accurate. Inaccurate, I'm sorry. It was, a, it was a book about 51 proofs that the Bible was not true. And today, all 51 of those scientific proofs have been debunked, not by Christians, by the science community. Every single one of them, not one of them is believed. And it was a very popular book back in the 1800s. And for thousands of years, people believed the earth was flat, right? We've read, I remember learning about that in history when I was in school. Everybody just agreed that the earth was flat. That was the given. That was, if you didn't believe that, you were crazy. And if, if, uh, if you insisted it wasn't flat, they'd probably have you institutionalized, right? Well, they should have looked at Isaiah 40 in verse 22 because it says that he sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. That word circle there can also be translated as sphere. God was speaking through Isaiah saying the earth is round. So, the, so science was behind the Bible in this sense and finally did catch up and agrees with it now. And it's funny that People call Christians today, we're, we're called flat earth, the flat earth society, because we believe in, you know, these fables that really aren't true, which is funny because Christians are the ones that first knew that the earth wasn't flat. So there's some irony there, but also there was a time where educated people believed that the earth was held up by something. Uh, maybe you, some of you probably studied this too. There was a time they believed that the earth was held up by elephants. Now those are some big elephants, but uh, that's what they believed. Something was holding it up. In fact, in Moses' time in Egypt, Egyptians believed that the earth was held up by five big pillars. And so they always believed that the earth was supported by something, that it wasn't just floating around in outer space. But in Job 26, we see that God tried to tell us this years ago. He said, he spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. Praise God. Science was behind the Bible again. Uh, stars. There was, a there was a long stretch of time where it was believed that there were 1,022 stars in the universe. And in 150 AD, a guy named Ptolemy found four more. He said, you guys are crazy. There's 1,026 stars in the universe. And we know now that there is more than we can count. Every time there's a new telescope that comes out, they find more. They find planets and stars and all kinds of stuff. Should have looked at Jeremiah 33:22. I will make the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister before him me as countless as the stars of the sky and as measureless as the sand on the seashore. He was trying to tell us something all the way back then. Uh, I'll give you a couple more scientific things. Uh, Bloodletting. Bloodletting was a thing for a common practice for years and years and years uh, where, where they assumed that if you had an infection or if you were sick that letting out some of your blood, bleeding you would actually make you get better because the infection was probably in the blood and all kinds of theories behind it. And it was a very common practice. And it wasn't until later that they realized that that actually was probably killing a lot of the people by letting, draining their blood out of their body, right? Because they didn't understand how blood really worked. In fact, many people believe that George Washington died because of bloodletting. He got an infection in his throat and they, they drained him a couple times over a few days and he ended up dying. And uh, it was a very common thing because they didn't really understand what it was doing. But in Le Leviticus 17, 14, God was trying to tell us that the life of every creature is in its blood. The life is in the blood. We know that now, don't we? The Bible's trying to tell us this all the way back during the time of the law. And then finally, germs and the spreading of disease and germs. You know, for years, nobody knew how it spread. In fact, in the 1300s, you guys know about the bubonic plague, the Black Death killed around 25 million people in Europe. And it just spread like crazy and they couldn't stop it from spreading and they weren't sure how, why or how it was spreading because they didn't really understand it. But in Leviticus 13, God was telling the Israelites how to deal with infectious diseases in their skin. He was talking about leprosy. And if you have leprosy and depending on how the sores look, you had to quarantine for seven days. And if it wasn't better, you quarantined for another seven days. Despite what people want to think, the CDC did not come up with the idea of quarantining. God did because that's how they stopped the spread of those diseases. And so again, science was behind the Bible, but it tends to catch up eventually, amen? Lots of things, I could go on and on and on and on about all these scientific things, but for the sake of time, I'm gonna move on. Uh, it's prophetically accurate as well. You know, people have dedicated their whole life to studying just the prophecies in the Word of God. There are literally thousands of prophecies in the Word of God, and I can tell you that many of them have been fully fulfilled, and some are still waiting to be fulfilled, 
but not a single one of them has been debunked. Not a one. That's incredible. Over a span of thousands of years, all these prophecies, not one has they been able to come back and say, oh, see, that didn't happen. We're still waiting for some of them, but, but none have been absolutely taken out and, and debunked completely. Because, you know, God took prophecy very seriously. In fact, people back in the day, they didn't want to be prophets because as a prophet in the Old Testament, especially time, in those times, you couldn't bat 300. You had to bat 1,000. In Deuteronomy, he's very clear. If somebody prophesies something, it doesn't happen the way they say it's going to happen. In the time frame that it's going to happen, they were to be killed. So, you know, being a prophet was a tough job. So people didn't even want it because God took it very seriously for good reason. Because now we can stand on that and know that it's true. In fact, there are 300 prophecies about the Messiah coming. Many of those prophecies came hundreds of years before Jesus actually came to earth. Every single one of them was fulfilled. Now listen, if we tried to predict something from 400, 400 years in the future, if we all tried it today, 300 of us got together and said, hey, let's make a prediction for 400 years from now. If the Lord still lets us have this earth, hopefully by then we'll all be with him. But if we were still here, unless we were incredibly vague, we wouldn't get one of them right. You know, you could say, yeah, the sun's going to come up in 400 years, <laughs> but that's cheating, right? But to be specific, we wouldn't get one of them right. There was 300 every one of them was fulfilled. And they were very, very specific about how Jesus would be born, where he would be born, where he would live, what he would do, how he would die, how he would rise again. All of them were very specific. Every one of them was true, 100%, across the board. That's incredible. That's incredible. The prophecies have all been fulfilled that God has given about Jesus. And there were types and shadows of Jesus before the Messiah even came and before they even knew about a Messiah. Before it was even really talked about or prophesied much, there was types and shadows of him all over the place that no one could have planned. You see, Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days, just like Jesus was in the grave for three days. And then Jonah came out and the people of Nineveh were redeemed. He was a type and shadow of Jesus. And, and Joshua, whose name, by the way, in Hebrew is basically the same as Jesus. He took people from the desert into the promised land, just like Jesus took us from the spiritual desert into the spiritual promised land. And Joseph, who by all intents and purposes was dead to his family because they thought he was dead, comes back to life in their, in their minds, you know, the metaphor there. And he saved them because they were all going to starve to death if he didn't do what he had done. So there, and th these things are all through the Old Testament, just over and over and over and over again. You see these types and shadows of Jesus that were going on thousands of years before Jesus even came to the earth. It's incredible the accuracy that the Bible possesses eyewitness accounts. Many of the people that wrote the books of the Bible were, were firsthand accounts of being there when it happened in the Bible. Um, Acts 1 and verse 3, it says, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. That word, when it says gave many convincing proofs in the Greek, that word means overwhelming evidence. You see, most people, just anybody really, for the most part, historians believe that Jesus was a man that lived back in the first century. They believe he lived. They even believe that he died on a cross. The sticking point is where it says that he rose again. That's where people get, get uh, messed up, right? So the Bible tells us that he appeared to the men and gave them many convincing proofs. It'd be one thing to dupe someone for a day or two. He was there for 40 days and lots of people saw him. It wasn't one person, two person, two people. It was a whole lot of people that actually saw him and got to experience him being on the earth after he had died and resurrected. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing about the disciples is that every one of them that was with him when he rose from the dead, that saw him and spent time with him, every one of them was tortured, beaten, suffered immensely, and all of them but John died a martyr's death. And they tried to kill John, they put him in boiling oil, he just didn't die. Now, they died for something because they believed wholeheartedly. Now, I know you would say, well, a lot of people have died for something they believed, even though it was a lie, right? And that's true, a lot of people have died for a lie, but they believed that it was true. Well, but these guys were with Jesus. They didn't hear this secondhand. They didn't, they didn't, they weren't generations down the road. They're believing it like we are. They were actually there and experienced him. So if they died for a lie, they knew it was a lie because they were there. 
No one dies for a lie if they know it's a lie. If it got to that point, you knew it was a lie and you're trying to dupe everybody and somebody comes and says, listen, we're gonna chop your head off if you don't tell us the truth and tell us that you don't believe in Jesus, the, the, suddenly the lie would end quickly if you knew that. But they were willing to die. In fact, if you Google and search the, the death of the early apostles, every one of them died horrific deaths. All of them. It was terrible how they died. The only way they would go through that was if they saw it and believed it with all their heart, which is exactly what they did. So is the word of God vital or is it voluntary? Well, in other words, is it relevant? Because if it's relevant, it's not voluntary because if it's relevant, it's true. And it's true because it's timeless. First Peter chapter one, verse 24, it says, all men are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Can someone say amen? It stands forever. It is relevant today, just like it was yesterday, just like it was 10 years ago. And I challenge you today, I know culture says today and society says today that the word of God is irrelevant, that it was for back then. And culture is so much different now. We've evolved so much. We've got so many things that they didn't have back then. It doesn't apply to our life today, right? Because we don't wash people's feet. We don't have to do so much of what they had to do. We have so many niceties and comforts. So much of it doesn't even make sense because they didn't have cars and they didn't have fast food and Amazon and Chick-fil-A and things like that, right? So it can't be relevant today. Well, you know, last week I talked about the, the fruit of the Spirit and how the fruit of the Spirit being evident in our life um, shows that the Spirit of God is in us and that we're full of the Spirit, right? Well, there's also the fruit of the flesh that, that dwells in us too that was written in our Bible. I'm going to read it to you out of Galatians 5 and verse 19 to see if it's actually relevant today. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties. Yeah, never mind, that's not relevant. That looks like the news report from this morning. I mean, that is as prevalent today as it has ever been in the history of the world. Let me tell you, the sin nature is relevant. It's very, very relevant and prevalent in society and in life today. And if the sin nature is relevant, then we need something to defeat the sin nature in our life. And the only thing that can defeat the sin nature in our life is Jesus, and it's through his word. Amen? So it is incredibly relevant. If anything, the niceties, the evolution of our society over the last couple thousand years has made it more needed than ever in life. Hebrews 4 and 12, it says, For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The word of God is living, church. It is alive. That's why it's relevant, because this isn't just a book that was written thousands of years ago. It's a living book. That's what makes it so different than every other book. That's why it's, it's sold six times more than the second place book in the history of the world, is because it's living and active. But can I tell you, can I suggest that the reason we don't want to believe it sometimes, or the reason we don't want to make it a, a part of our regular routine and our daily life is because of what I just read in Hebrews 4, is because it is sharp, because it does penetrate our life, because it does judge our thoughts and our attitudes. If you want to live the way you want to live and not be judged, you better stay out of this because it's going to do that in your life. It's going to show you places in your life. It's going to show you your heart. And that is a scary thing if you don't want to know your heart. If you want to live deceived and think you're just a good person and that's enough, don't touch this book because it will destroy every good thought you've ever had about yourself because that's exactly what it's designed to do. It's designed to judge our thoughts and to judge our heart and show us our heart and show us our need for a savior, our desperate, desperate need for our savior. See, it starts off pretty rough when it starts talking about the law, but then once you get into the Gospels, you get into the Paul's writings, and you see what the Gospel actually does in our life, it's actually pretty stinking cool. It's the greatest thing that's ever been, in fact. But it will do exactly that. And the great thing about it is that it convicts us. It doesn't condemn us. You know, your enemy wants to condemn you and make you feel like you're nothing. The Word wants to convict you and make you see that you're on your own you're nothing, but 
the, the word of God can transform us and it can change us. Because see, if it convicts us, it can also transform us. That's where the power is in the word of God. You know, the common conception today is that people don't change. You can't be transformed. You know, a leopard can't change its spots. Well, a leopard that reads the Bible can. Amen? I mean, I'm to the point in life where I, I agree with that concept that people don't change. I mean, you could try, but typically you're going to come back to your, your natural inclinations in your life for the most part. It's not impossible, but it's very rare for people to change with one exception, this. It's the only exception. This is what changes us. If you try to just grit your teeth and change, if you even try to grit your teeth and change and be a better Christian without the word, you're wasting your time. You're wasting your time because the only thing that changes us is the power of God through his word in our life. And not just on a rainy day, every day, because let me tell you, in your flesh, every day is a rainy day. Every single minute, every single second of every day is a rainy day in your flesh. You need this, this rainy day thing every minute of every day in your life. I mean, how many times have you heard someone share a testimony about what God's done in their life? And maybe you didn't know them before they got saved and they talk about how they were before they got saved and when they got saved, they, they dove into God's word and it transformed them. And you look at them and say, wow, I don't even know that person. That's incredible, right? That just happened to me a couple weeks ago. We were sitting, talking to some people and, and one woman sitting with us was telling us her testimony and how like before she got saved that Everybody was afraid of her because she had such a sharp tongue and she could just cut people down and it was just like a matter of time before she's going to get you and cut you. And people were terrified of her. And I've known this woman for years and I looked at her, my mouth hung open. I said, my gosh, that isn't even who you are anymore. Like, I don't even, it's not even, I don't even see, I can't even see the residue from that in your life. It's all because of this. This is the only thing that changes us. This is what takes us from death to life. It's always going to be the same thing. John 8 and verse 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, Jesus is not talking about his Sermon on the Mount. He's not talking about what he's saying to them at that time. His teaching is the word of God. Okay. This is Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. Just so you know, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It will set you free from the person you used to be. And the only thing that can do it is knowing the truth and holding on to his word. You know, the second part of that verse, you see it everywhere. You know, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. You've seen that all over the place. It's actually very common to see it at universities, you know, in a, in a stone and put into a brick wall at a university or on a plaque or something. You'll hear that. But you know what? That's only half the story. Education isn't what sets you free. Knowledge isn't what sets you free. They're missing the most important part of this verse. He says, if you believe me and you hold to my teaching, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It's the truth of his teaching. It's about believing, holding on to his word, knowing and being free. That's the formula for freedom in your life. And it's only through his word. Nothing transforms lives like the power of God. You know, D.L. Moody was, has said one time, and I don't know the quote, but something to the effect of the Bible wasn't given to us for knowledge. It was given to us to change us. And that's what it does. It changes our lives. So how does it do that? How does it transform us? I'm going to give you three quick points of how it transforms us. And don't worry, I'll finish close to on time. First of all, we have to absorb it, which means we have to read it. I mean, it sounds ludicrous to have to say that, but it's true. We all have all these Bibles in our house, but yet too oftentimes they're tucked in a desk and saved for a rainy day. And the idea that this can get into our heart by just having it and memorializing it is as ludicrous as thinking that by having medicine on my desk that it's going to make me better. The only way to get this into here and here is through here and here. That's the only way. You have to be able to do it. You, you can't, telepathy doesn't work. It's got to be something that you're actually absorbing, that you're actually reading and in including in your life. You know, I've shared my story many times, my testimony about just the fact that I was raised in church. I don't remember a time in my life, literally do not remember a time where I was not in church regularly. It's just how I was raised. And I grew up in the church and I knew the memory verses. I knew the Bible stories. Uh, I knew the songs. I knew the hymns, the red back hymnal, knew them. I knew how to act like a Christian. But church, I was dying inside. 
I was dying. I didn't have some huge sin. I wasn't out partying and, and living a double life. It wasn't anything like that. I, but I was dying inside. And I came to a point of a crisis in faith where I said, God, there's got to be more. There has got to be more than this religious ritual. Has to be. Because this is not cutting it. Because I knew how I felt all the time. And I was a pretty good guy. Not to brag. And I, and I was challenged to read my Bible. The bottom line, I was just challenged to read my Bible. I don't remember exactly even how that all came about, but I know it was the Lord that got me to read my Bible. And what I did was I would come home from work and I would lay on my bed and I would read my Bible. And I read for about, an, uh, I started about 30 minutes and I got to where I was actually, I was enjoying it. You know how I was dying inside? I felt something start to come to life inside of me. And I started enjoying it. And I got to where I was excited to come home from work so I could read. And I would read it for an hour at a time and I'd read it for two hours at a time. And I started to devour this thing. And you know what happened? It completely changed my life. I got saved reading my Bible because, and I had been in church my whole life, church, my whole life. And I know there are those of you in here today that have been in church regularly your whole life and you feel like you're dying inside. Can I challenge you today? Get this out, make it a part of your life, read it to believe it and let it change you and become part of you. And it will bring dead things to life inside of you. It will absolutely do that. God's word is secure. It is true. It is exactly what it is designed to do. I am not standing up here giving you some untested philosophical theory about what it can do. I can tell you it's changed me. It has made me a different person than who I was. And it has completely conformed me into the image of Christ and what he is calling me to be. Now, I'm not perfect and I don't have it all figured out. I have my struggles, but I know the difference between being religious and loving Jesus. And it is huge. So you can know your memory verses and you can know all the things you need to know, but it's about consuming it daily like we do. Like I know enough to know that I need oxygen. I know that I need food. I know that I need water. I know that I need air conditioning. I guess I don't have to have that, but I really like it. But I know that I need the word of God every day in my life. Every day we have to consume it. And I've heard all the excuses too, church. And I've, I've, come up with, I've come up with some of my own. I know the excuses to not do it. But if I could be so bold today as to say, like, just take 30 minutes out of your social media time and read your Bible. Take 30 minutes out of your Netflix time, read your Bible. We've all got time to do everything we want to do. Commit to it. Read it. After we absorb it, we have to accept it. We believe it. We walk by faith. We choose to believe that it is the word of God. And if we don't want to believe it, it's because we want control. At the end of the day, it's because we don't want somebody else telling us how to live our life. I want to control my own life. I'm content to be a good person and to kind of know the high points. Other than that, I'm kind of, I'm good. That's all about control. And you cannot be a follower of Jesus and control your life. You cannot do it. It is about giving over control to him. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has set eternity in the hearts of man. Eternity is in our hearts. Everybody is drawn to the idea of eternity. Don't let atheists fool you and say they don't care or believe in any of that. It is in our hearts. God put it there. He made us in his image. And so there is a pull. There is a draw. We can squelch it. We can squelch it. We can cover it with self to the point that we think we don't believe in it, but it's there because we have all been created with eternity in our hearts. And until we believe it, we cannot experience it's transforming power. You know, a lot of people have read the Bible and walked away further from God than they were before they read it because they didn't want to believe it. Now, there's stories of people that tried to de debunk the Bible and got saved doing it. You know, Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ, incredible story where he was trying to debunk it. Uh, Josh McDowell did his thesis on why the, the resurrection never happened. He got saved doing it. Stuff like that happens, but a lot of people read it purposely to try to get rid of it and say it's not true. But you have to believe it to really let it change your life. This book, man, I tell you, there's, there's so much good. This is, the, this is the place you find out that you're not an accident. This is the place you find out that you've been made with a purpose, where you have a heavenly father, that you're loved, that God has a plan for your life and it's good. The path of salvation is found in no other place. That's what's so beautiful about it. Of course, this would be something the enemy would wanna get rid of in our lives because it's got the words of eternal life for all of us. So we have to choose to believe it.
And then finally we act on it. We put it into practice. We do what it says. If we just read it, listen to it, and get head knowledge, we're only doing half of the part. The, the, the head knowledge is the launching pad for the doing. We have to do the word in our life. Can I tell you, as great as it is to be part of a church and to hear the word and come together like this, if this is the extent of our faith and it's just about hearing the word and it's about uh, just being part of community, but we're not really doing the word, it's a tragedy. Because it's not meant to be that. James tells us very clearly, James 1, he says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. If you're just listening, you're deceiving yourself. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Praise God. We are meant to be doers of the word. Don't be like the, the daughter. Francis Chan gave this analogy one time and I thought it was so good. He said, you know, if my daughter, if I tell my daughter, hey, I want you to go clean your room, it's a mess. She says, okay, dad. She comes back a couple hours later. He says, hey, did you clean your room? And she says, no, but I, a bunch of my friends came over. We sat around and talked about what it would look like if we cleaned my room. He said, I'd be very frustrated. But that's the church. We talk about what it looks like to live a life of faith, but we actually have to do it. We actually have to act on it. It's just as important. Once, once you, you're, you're accountable for what you know. And once you know, it's, a, it's indicative upon all of us to do. That doesn't earn us our salvation. It's in response to our salvation. It doesn't make us right with God. We do it because we are right with God. You cannot say you believe this and, and it's, it's changed your life and it's part of who you are and it doesn't flow out of your life. Just like last week we said you can't be full of the Spirit if the fruit of the Spirit is not in your life. You can't say that I'm a, a Christian that loves Jesus if you're not living the life that a Christian would live. Someone that's been forgiven of their sins and knows that they should have got a horrible penalty for their sins and got them forgiven is going to live a life in response to that that's going to look different than somebody who hasn't received that same forgiveness. That's how, that's how it works in us and through us in our life. So we absorb it, we accept it, and we act on it. And that's how the Word of God transforms our life. Praise God. Would you stand with me, please? I'd like to pray for us today. I'm gonna to invite you to this altar, okay? I would like you to come up so I can pray for you. If you just wanna to commit today, like I want, I want the word of God to be more part of my life. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not being faithful in reading it or absorbing it or accepting it or acting on it. Just not being faithful. I invite you to come up today. Let me pray for you. Come on, don't, don't wait around. It doesn't mean you don't ever read your Bible, but we all need to go to another level in our faith and in our in our commitment to God's word, because his word is everything, church. It's everything. It's everything. There is no other route that we can take. The plan of salvation is very clear, and it's in his word. Thank you, Lord. Pray with me, church. Heavenly Father, I thank you today for your word. We know that your word is true, God. But Lord, we also, we, we address the doubts that we have, the skepticism that we have sometimes, Lord, where we have allowed society and culture to come in and say, ah, that's not true. And it's caused us to question, caused us to maybe set it aside and not make it a, a part of our daily life. Or we've even doubted whether or not it's true, God. Lord, we acknowledge that that happens in our lives, but Lord, we don't want to stay there. And where we have believed the lies, Lord, would you forgive us? Lord, we turn away from those lies today and we stand on your truth knowing that your word is true, that the Bible is God's word, that it is inerrant, it is without flaw from beginning to end. It is the inspired word of God that you spoke through these 40 authors and we thank you for it today, God. Lord, forgive us for where we have not made it a vital part of our life where we have made it more of a luxury, where it's been memorialized in our life. God, we want it to be like the air we breathe. Lord, your word is everything to us. We wanna be transformed by your word. God, would you do your work in our hearts? Lord, today, would you help us to commit 
to absorbing it, to accepting it, and to acting on it in our life, God. Lord Jesus, we give ourselves to you today. We thank you, Lord, that this, the plan of salvation is so clearly marked out. And the reason we know about salvation is because of your word. Lord, we thank you that you have provided salvation for each and every one of us. For all who will believe, we receive your love today. We receive your pleasure with us in our life. We honor you today, Jesus, above all else. And we thank you for it. And it's in Jesus' mighty and precious name we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Can we praise God one more time this morning? Thank you, Lord. <laughs> praise God. Praise God. Listen, before we go today, I just want to, I want to challenge you. Okay. I know, I know enough to know that it's challenging to read, read your Bible consistently. I know it is. And I know you can look at me and think, well, that's easy for you, pastor. You're paid to read your Bible. But I, 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 I read my Bible consistently long, long before I was a pastor. Let me tell you, me being a pastor does not, the reality is it doesn't make living this out any easier. In fact, it's more under a microscope. My, 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 my relationship with Jesus and with his word is different than being a pastor. Pastoring is my vocation. And I appreciate it and I love it and it's a calling and I'm blessed. But let me tell you, my life, my relationship with Jesus and my commitment to his word would not change if I was not doing this tomorrow. So I wanna challenge you today. You know, they say, 40 days is a great amount of time to really commit to something. You can really create a habit. I know there's different, different lengths of time that they say a habit can be created, but you know, some habits are good habits. And I would encourage you to take 40 days and just commit to reading this every day for even just 30 minutes, if that's all you can give it. But just setting an alarm in your phone, you know, you can label your alarm, hey, read your Bible, you need it. You know, something, something that reminds you to read it and set it to go off and, and then whatever you're doing, just stop and do it and read it. And I, I, I believe with all my heart that as we commit to it, that God starts to stir things up in us, that he does bring dead things to life, and that he does help us deal with some of the chains that have been holding us, and, and not just cherry picking and looking for scriptures that will encourage us in the moment, but to really read it and take it in for what it is. I'm not gonna pretend that every day I get up and I just can't wait to get to read my Bible. There's some days it's tough, right? But I know enough of the importance of it. I know enough of what it's done in my life to know that I need it. So I'm challenging you guys. Let's take a 40-day challenge and read it every day for 40 days and see what happens in your life. And I would be encouraged to hear your testimonies after 40 days about what God has spoken to you and how he's ministered to you through it. Okay? Can we accept that challenge today? All right, good. Praise God.